0: Good morning, everyone. It is such a joy to be with you on this Thanksgiving Sunday. At this time of year, my family and I are especially thankful to the Lord for all of you, for this congregation. Uh, This time of year marks about uh, our anniversary of moving to Nashville two years ago. It's weird moving right before a pandemic. In some sense, it feels like we moved here two weeks ago. And then another sense, it feels like we moved here 20 years ago, the sort of wrinkling of time that happens in these unusual circumstances. And one of the things we're grateful for is how the Lord has used all of you, this family, to welcome us to this city, to enfold us into your lives, to care for us, to remind us of the love of Christ. And so we're, our hearts are, are full of gratitude to Christ uh, for all of you and, f- and for the joy that it's been to be a part of this congregation. And that makes it an especially joyful privilege to open God's word with you all this morning. Is there anyone in charge of the universe? And if so, does he care? Does he care about me? It's one of those timeless questions that people have been pondering throughout the centuries. And it's the question at the center of a memoir by the Scottish author Mez McConnell. His book is entitled, Is Anybody Out There? And the book tells the tragic story of Mez and how he suffered. He suffered neglect, abuse, unspeakable horrors inflicted on him, even by members of his own family. Uh, Then his social worker, the one person that he'd been looking to for hope, died when Mez was just 13 years old. And he writes, that was the first time I consciously questioned life. I began to question my own mortality. I thought I believed in God, but who was God? What did he have to do with me? What had he ever done for me? Was there a reason for all this madness? You hear what he's asking. Is there anyone who's really in charge? And does he care? And I think if you were to go around the streets of Nashville and and ask the the folks that you meet this this question, is there someone in charge of the universe and does he care? You'd really get about four basic answers. First, you would talk to the person who says, no, there's no one in charge and there's no one who cares. This is the skeptic, this is the cynic. This is the person you talk to who says, we're all just the product of pure chance. We've just got to fight to survive in the world, make your own meaning, fight your way through survival of the fittest. Second would be the person who believes there must be a divine being out there who cares for us, but it just doesn't seem like he's in charge of everything. This is the person who says maybe God is like a cosmic watchmaker. You know, he winds up the gears and he sets up the mechanisms and he gets the world going, but then he retreats into his private movie theater to watch history unfold and he doesn't meddle in everyday affairs even though he cares about us. Nothing he can do about it. Third would be the person who says, there must be someone in charge of everything, but he doesn't seem to care. At least he doesn't seem to care about me. And this is the person who looks over the wars and the genocides of history, who looks at the hurricanes and the pandemics and concludes that God must be cold and indifferent. I wonder if any of these views that we've talked about so far is your perspective today as you consider the broken world we live in, or as you consider the brokenness of your own life and the wounds of your own story. But I also wonder if it's ever occurred to you that if there is a God who is in charge and who cares, wouldn't such a God, wouldn't it be consistent with such a being to cause us to have this very question in our hearts, to wonder to ask, to search, to long, to know if there really is someone who's in charge of the universe and who loves us. And if you continue to walk around the streets of Nashville asking that question, I believe you'd meet someone very much like the author of our psalm this morning. Someone who would be able to come up to you and says, I believe there is someone in charge of everything and he really does care for us and there's good reasons to believe that God is real and you can know him today. And the thing is not only... Can such a God be known? But such a God must be praised. That's what we're gonna see in our psalm this morning. So if you have a Bible, I would invite you to open it up with me to Psalm 147, or you can grab a copy of the scriptures that are provided. The book of Psalms is right smack dab in the middle of the Bible. You should be able to open there and look for the big number 147. If you don't have a Bible at home that you can understand, please feel free to take that with you today as our gift to you. We would love nothing more than for you to, to read it, explore it, read, read some more of the Psalms. Come back next week and ask us whatever questions you might have about it. The Psalms were the songbook of Israel. And in the last section of the book, which is Psalms 146 to 150, these last five psalms, this kind of inspired hymnal culminates in a crescendo of adoration and exaltation to God. Each of these last five psalms begins and ends with the same refrain. You see it there. If you just kind of glance over, if you can feel free to flip around, they all begin and end with the words, praise the Lord. In Hebrew, that's hallelujah. The Psalms end with praise, and that's what we're going to see in Psalm 147. Who is this God, and why should we praise him? I invite you, if you're able to, to please stand now in honor of the word of the Lord as I read to us Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob. His statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Please be seated. I want to give you a phrase that sums up this whole psalm. This is the big idea of the text. We should praise God for his strong comfort, his sustaining care, And his sovereign command. Those are the three points we're gonna look at this morning. We should praise God for his strong comfort, his sustaining care, and his sovereign command. We see first in verses one to six, we should praise God for his strong comfort. The psalmist begins with this phrase, as I said, praise the Lord. And why should we do this? He says, it is good. It's a pleasant thing to sing praises to our God. And if you've been in church for any moment of time, you've probably heard this word praise. It's one of these sort of religious words that we can throw around. So let's define it. What does it mean to give praise to God? Here's a definition. To praise God is to declare with delight his unsurpassed value and authority. Praising God is declaring with delight his unsurpassed value and authority. So praise is something that involves our hearts and our voices. He says a song of praise is fitting. It is the most appropriate thing in the world for the creatures God has made, us, to give him praise, to give him glory and adoration. And it's not just appropriate. It's delightful. It's pleasurable to do this. Songs have great power to connect The words of our lips with the affections of our hearts. And so the psalmist is saying that this God isn't just worthy of sort of written statements of praise. He's not just worthy of books of praise. He's not just worthy of press releases of praise. No, no, no. This is a God who's worthy of music. He's worthy of song and melody. Our praise of God isn't rooted in our circumstances. It's rooted in his character. It's rooted in his deeds. So notice as the psalmist goes on, he's going to articulate reasons God is worthy of our praise. His character, his deeds. Look at verse 2. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. We don't know exactly when this psalm was written. Uh, It appears to be around the time that Israel returned to the promised land after decades of exile far away in Babylon. If you read through the Old Testament, you will quickly see God's people were unfaithful. They were guilty of idolatry. They were guilty of injustice. God had promised that if they committed these sins, he would send them away into captivity. They committed those sins. He sent them away into captivity. For 70 years, they had to live in a foreign land. And so we can see why these exiles would be described as outcasts, broken-hearted, wounded people. They've suffered decades of captivity far, far away from home because of their own sin. And yet exile wasn't the end of the story. God, in his mercy, brought the remnant of his people who trusted him back. You can read about this in the books of Ezra and, and Nehemiah, where literally we see the city of Jerusalem being rebuilt by God's grace, by his power. And so if you imagine these exiles really hobbling back to a Jerusalem in ruins, it didn't have its former grandeur anymore. They've got bodies and souls wounded by the afflictions of imprisonment in a foreign land. And God hasn't forsaken them. God is the one who mercifully draws them back and welcomes them and showers them with his grace and so the psalmist is inviting them to to raise their frail voices and praise to the God who is mighty to forgive and comfort them what are your wounds I wonder all of us have various hurts are your wounds the pains of a fragile body of broken relationships? Are they the scars of betrayal by others, by by friends or family, even those who who call themselves Christians? This psalm is honest. It's honest about the the woundedness of the human condition. Uh, This psalmist, I don't think, would be surprised uh, by all of the division and the strain and the hurt that many of us have experienced in, in 2020 or in 2021. But this psalmist also knows the only one that we can go to for lasting comfort and for true healing. The, the picture that these verses are giving us is not of a God who's far off, who's distant and disinterested. It, it's not a God who's sort of watching our plight through the thick glass of the operating room. No, it, it's, it's a God who himself is the careful and skilled doctor who is stitching up and binding up our deepest wounds with his own tender hands. He's healing our deepest wounds, which are the wounds of our sin against him. Uh, My family and I, you can often find us hanging out at the the brand new playground at South Englewood Park, a couple miles up the road that way. And my three-year-old son is often running around. And when he falls and skins his knee, where does he go? Where does he think to go? I am not a doctor. I have very little sort of medical understanding. I can't instantly heal his wounds. But he he runs to me because he looks around at all the other parents. No, 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 no. Oh, you, you're you're my daddy. So he runs into my arms, even though I, I can't do that much about it. The picture that these verses are giving us is of a God whose arms are strong enough to receive wounded exiles, to receive spiritual outcasts. And this is the God that we can run to for comfort, no matter what our wounds are. And that's why the psalmist reminds us of God's wisdom and his strength. Look at verse 4. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. He's saying if God is the sovereign ruler of the universe who puts each galaxy in place, well, then how much more does he care for us, his redeemed people? Now, I was curious. I wanted to know how many stars we we're talking about here. If you're a kid here this morning, I wonder if you've ever tried to figure out how high you can count. Ever been in like a car on a road trip and you just try to count, count, count and see how, what's the highest number you can get up to? Or have you ever tried to actually count all of the stars in the sky? Maybe you go out to the country somewhere and you just, you know, lay down and see how many you can count. Well, I did some very scientific research on this. I consulted Google. And Google told me that there are 300 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And there are around 100 billion galaxies in the universe. And if you take the about the average number of stars per galaxy, it yields an estimate, they say, of a three with 22 zeros after it. Now, that's a number that I don't even know how to pronounce. There is a sort of word for it, but I couldn't tell you that. It it, it sort of bends our minds to even fathom a number that big. And yet God didn't just create that many stars. He gave a name to each of them. He oversees them all like a general commanding a vast army. That's why the psalmist says in verse 5, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. In other words, why should we trust this God with the things that we don't understand? Our wounds and our our sadness and our suffering. We trust that this God is tender in his care of us because he's the only one who is both strong enough and wise enough to rule over this whole vast creation. Only a God like this knows every pain You experience and can do something about it. But we should notice not not everyone experiences his strong comfort. Look at verse six. There's a sobering contrast here. The Lord lifts up the humble, he casts the wicked to the ground. Each section in this psalm ends with a contrast a contrast between those who trust in this praiseworthy God and and those who don't. And and here we see that it is only those who are humble who can experience this healing and this comfort from God. The, The wicked can't relate to God in this way. They've refused, in fact, to relate to God in this way because the wicked are those who put Ourselves on the on our own throne of this life, who say, "I don't need this God who made all the stars. I can handle things very well without Him." And so, if we're honest, verse six is a bit of a problem for us, because as soon as we look at verse six and we try to understand, "Okay, am I the wicked or am I the humble?" As soon as we say, "You know what? I'm pretty humble." There's an ironic problem there because that's the thing about humility. The more confident you are, you've got it. The more you've actually proved that you're self-deceived. All of us in so many various ways have not lived up to the the humble standard that we see God lay out for us in Scripture. Though we've all expressed it in different ways, the most accurate word in verse 6 to define all of us is the wicked. We, we've walked in the ways of our, of our foreparents, Adam and Eve. Uh, Adam and Eve didn't humble themselves before the Lord. They wanted to have the God's eye view of everything. They, they, they wanted to, to be like God, and we've all followed them in, in various ways. Well, what happened with Adam and Eve because of their sin? God exiled them. They became outcasts away from God's special presence in the garden. That's the exact same thing that happened later with his people Israel. As we've seen, they were exiled out of the promised land. And so it is with all of us. All of us because the ways that we've rebelled against God's good rule in our lives have become spiritual exiles. We're outcasts. We're not fit to dwell with God. And yet the great news of Scripture that we see is that God, in his mercy and his love, just like he brought those exiles back so many hundreds of years ago, has come to us in the person of his Son. Jesus Christ came to dwell with us, to make us fit to dwell with him. He was the only person in history who ever lived that could be rightly characterized as humble, truly humble, walking in the ways of God. And yet he was cast to the ground, not for his wickedness, but for ours. He, on the cross, was exiled spiritually that we might be welcomed in. He was made an outcast that we might be made daughters and sons of God. He was wounded for us. He was pierced for our transgressions and by his wounds, we are healed. And he rose again, conquering sin and death and leading the way back to the presence of God for every spiritual exile who would turn from our sin and trust in Christ. So that's who the humble are. They're not those who are perfect. They're those who repent. They're those who see that I have a sin issue that only Christ can take away and turn from sin and trust in Christ and are welcomed out of exile into the presence of our God who is a God that is strong to comfort us. And when we've tasted that strong comfort of God through the gospel of Christ and through all the millions of ways that he cares for us, we praise him. We praise God for his strong comfort but that's not all it's not just that he comforts us he also cares for us each day and so second the psalmist calls us to praise God for his sustaining care look with me at verse seven he says sing to the Lord with thanksgiving make melody to our God on the lyre each section of this psalm begins with a call to praise Here in this second section, which is verses 7 to 11, we see that this praise includes thanksgiving, very appropriately for this time of year. Uh, When the redeemed praise God, they always sing in the key of gratitude. Uh, As you look through scripture, you'll see thanksgiving really isn't meant to just be one day or one season. For the redeemed, thanksgiving is a way of life. When we make melody to the Lord, when we sing to him, whether that's together as a corporate body on Sundays, whether that's individually in our own lives or with friends or with families throughout the week, we are expressing a thanksgiving that goes deep into our hearts because we've known God's sustaining care. So again, the psalmist moves on and in verse 8. He shows why we're so grateful, why we make this melody to God. Why? Because he covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. The point is just as Jesus said, consider the ravens. If God can provide for them, surely he will sustain us, the crown of his creation. And we got to remember in the ancient world, if it didn't rain, you didn't eat. So God providing the rains was a very tangible gift. You looked out and you saw these raindrops and you were reminded of God's care. I think it's a good reminder to us who are a little bit maybe more removed from the whole processes of rain and growth and agriculture. Every morsel we enjoy, whether it's a pizza dinner on a Sunday evening night after prayer service or whether it's a Thanksgiving turkey, every bite is a gift of God's grace. These verses are teaching us what in theological terms is called God's providence. A big fancy word that simply means that God provides for and sustains and governs every inch of his creation. He provides for all creatures in his common grace. And he provides for and sustains especially his chosen redeemed people. I love how one of the old catechisms put it, quote, "All things come to us not by chance, but by His fatherly hand." That's God's providence. And yet we have to admit, this idea of God providing and sustaining can be somewhat complex. It's a fair question to say, OK, well if He provides for the beasts and, and the young ravens, well well don't the beasts of the field eventually die? I've seen ravens and I've seen birds that, that, that die. And, and what about Christians? What if a believer starves to death? Has God's providence failed them at that point? We have to remember this is a fallen world. Until Jesus comes back, all creatures will die. That's part of the curse. That's part of the effect of the fall into sin. Stretching all the way back to the third chapter of Genesis. Genesis. For all who are in Christ, for all who have put our trust in God, God has removed the ultimate judgment we deserve for our sin. Yet he is still ordained that we live out our days in this fallen world. And he is the one that sustains us for each moment that he gives us. Remember, his understanding is beyond measure. Verse 5, he's the all-wise God, we're not. And so he's the one that determines the number of our days. And sustains us for each moment in those days. Sometimes the way God provides for a hungry believer is not through another earthly meal. It's by bringing them home to glory. Where the wedding feast of the lamb overflows and never ends. And looking ahead to glory uh, leads us into the contrast that ends this second section. Look at verses 10 and 11 where we see that God's delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. There could be a military reference here, uh, the strength of the horse, the cavalry, the legs of the man, the infantry. We, we know that Israel was tempted throughout its history to trust in the armies of other nations rather than trusting in God. The armies of the other nations were tangible. They had horses, they had chariots, they had weapons. If we make an alliance with these guys, they'll give us the help that we need. God seems abstract and ethereal and far away. And of course, that's just like us. We're so tempted to trust in the tangible things. We, we trust in our resume. We trust in our connections. We trust in our bank accounts. We, we trust in our accomplishments rather than trusting in God who seems far off. Or maybe we look at our lives and we look at the things that the world values like resumes and connections. And we feel like we don't have any of those. And so we're tempted to engage in self-pity and self-despair rather than trusting in God. What about bodily health? What about this whole movement in our society of of health and wellness? Is that what we should be trusting in? What about the legs of a man? Uh, In 2008, I ran the Chicago Marathon. And uh, I discovered on on that day that the legs of a man, at least the legs of this man, I don't think were designed to go 26.2 miles I had not trained as adequately as I was supposed to, and I only made it across the finish line because I had a good friend with me, ibuprofen, and I relied on on that friend perhaps a little bit too much, some of you medical people might say, and I made it across that that finish line. And it's just a picture, you you know, a guy in his 20s can't make it 26 miles without, you know, taking a bunch of pills. Our bodies will fail us. Even the good things, the good gifts of God, family, governments, presidents, armies, jobs, these are good gifts and yet they all fade away. Why would we trust in anything other than God to sustain us for each day? I love the phrase that you see there in verse 11. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. Not the Lord tolerates them, not the Lord puts up with them. No, the Lord takes pleasure in you if you fear him. He delights in in you, your weakness, your need. The fact that you are a dependent person on God doesn't make God embarrassed of you. It doesn't make him exasperated with you. He delights to shower needy people with his abundant care. And when he says fear of the Lord, he's not talking about when we get scared of a, of a spider or scared of heights. He's talking about a full orb response of grateful awe. It's like standing beneath Niagara Falls. We, we see the majesty and the power of God, and yet we tremble, but we tremble with joy because we have tasted how this God has so kindly cared for us. And I just want to say, I praise God that he's made Edgefield Church a congregation of people who so evidently hope in God's steadfast love. That's, that's the atmosphere of the folks here. What a sweet spirit it is to talk to people and to hear about your hope in God, in the gospel. It's just become so clear to me that this is not a church for people who have it all together. And that's a good thing. This is not a church for people who feel no need to rely on someone. This is only a church for broken people. And that's all of us. People who know the American dream is bankrupt. People who know that our only hope for life and for death is the God who gives us every raindrop, every breath. And what I would encourage us in is it's often those who are weak in the world's eyes who are the best examples of of hoping in God's steadfast love. It's the unemployed, it's widows, it's children It's these sorts of people in Edgefield Church who should be our heroes and our role models that we look to for examples of faith and trust in God. Desperate dependence on God is what fosters real thanksgiving. We depend on the God who sends the rains, the God who makes the grass grow. And as we see him faithfully provide, we praise him. We praise him. Not just for his strong comfort, but for his sustaining care in our lives. And as we do, as we praise him for these things, it should also cause us to wonder, how? How does God so richly provide us with all these blessings that we enjoy? That leads to point three. We praise God also for his sovereign command. Look with me at verse 12. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. So earlier we saw God comforting the exiles as they returned. Now we see him blessing his people in the rebuilt city. There's a picture here of Jerusalem thriving and prospering with peace on the borders. He strengthens their gates. The children are blessed. The finest of wheat is enjoyed in in every kitchen. And, and, And how does he provide these blessings? By his command, by his word, his decree. This is a God who spoke creation into existence out of nothing. All he needs to do is say the word. And Israel has these abundant blessings. All he needs to, to do is say the word. And we experience and taste every single blessing that we enjoy in this life. Now, of course, this, this, this leads to some questions as well. We can look at verses like this and see this utopian picture. Wow. Wow. Uh, There's peace everywhere, the finest of wheat, the children are blessed. And we can wonder, how do Old Testament verses like these about physical blessings apply to our lives? Because we have to be honest, as we look through the rest of the Bible, we will realize one way to start answering that question is to, to look at what happened with Old Testament Israel. You can read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. You can read the books of Zechariah and and Malachi, and you will see things were not exactly perfect yet. There was still war. There was still poverty. There there was still suffering and hunger. And so what that teaches us as we look across the whole expanse of Scripture is that these verses are promises. They're a picture of what will happen further on into the future. They were fulfilled in a way when when the exiles returned, but they were fulfilled only partially. These verses point us forward to a new and greater Jerusalem. When Christ returns, he will establish a new heavens and a new earth. That is the place we look to for final and total peace. No more terrorism, no more injustice, no more pandemics, but peace and prosperity forever as we dwell secure in God's land and and the point that this psalm is making is as we look forward to these promises being fulfilled we're not in control of the world God is that's what the psalmist is is going on about here look at look at verse 16 and just emphasize with me in your mind all the he and his you know he gives snow like wool he scatters frost like ashes no one else does this the king doesn't do this. The other gods don't do this. They're not real anyway. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. All right, we saw earlier that God is the one who sends the sweet rains that water the earth. But now we see that God is the one in charge of the storms as well. When he wields the ice and the hail. That is a reminder of his justice and his purity. That's why the psalmist says, who can stand before his cold? The thought of approaching this God outside of Christ should be truly bone-chilling to us. But yet, we know that he is a God who has shown us grace in Christ. He shows kindness to the world. As verse 18 says, God faithfully sends The warm breezes. He speaks his word. He melts the frost to bring spring out of winter. And we can trust that in his good timing, hopefully soon, he will speak his word and he will bring the warm winds of a repaired HVAC system into this very building. He is capable of it. He calls us to wait on him with trust. But I wonder has your heart been cold to God? lately? Has it been cold to God for a long time? If God can melt the frost of winter with a single word, then surely he can melt your hardened heart even today. Both of our children are adopted and so with each of them we went through something of a a similar process of having the adoption finalized by a judge. And so we, we got to experience this wonderful moment uh, in the life of our family where a judge evaluates the, the case and looks at all of the paperwork, and then the judge makes a declaration. And at that very moment, by the judge's word, thinking back to you know when we adopted our, our daughter, Lena, right about seven years ago, when, when, the, when the judge uttered that declaration, that is when Lena became legally and totally part of our family. Same thing with our son Isaiah uh, when he was adopted. And so it's just a wonderful picture of a word that is effective. Wow, that's a lot of power. But as I was pondering this, you have to remember that even though the judge seems very powerful, it has all this authority, and there's all these sort of rules about how you talk to the judge, and you know, all, all, there's all this decorum. At the end of the day, when that judge goes home, takes off the robes, sits down at the kitchen table, when she, if she says, I think I'd like a turkey sandwich, it, it doesn't magically appear. You know, that judge has a very powerful and effective word, but only in some Very limited circumstances. God's not like that. When God declares something, it is so. That's what it means that his command is sovereign. His word can't be thwarted. When God ordains that all of us are adopted as children in his family, it is so. His word cannot be turned back. And the psalmist has this truth about God's word in mind. In the final contrast he gives us, verses 19 to 20. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Now, I wonder if when you first heard me read that earlier, if this seemed like an odd way to conclude this happy psalm. Is this a sort of version of ancient Near East trash talk? You know, we've got God's word and you don't. I don't think that's what's going on here. We have to remember that without God revealing Himself to Israel, they were nothing. And it's only because God chose to speak that they could know who He is. God takes the initiative, even as Pastor Matt said at the opening of this service we could not find our way to God if we were looking. But God speaks into the darkness and tells us who He is. It's right for them to praise God for this. He has given them his word. Because he gave them his law, that's how they know his character. And because they know his character, they can see how they've fallen short of that character and see that they need a savior. And it's the same with us. We don't deserve to know God's word. It's because of his grace that he has revealed himself to us. And now we have a very important stewardship Because since this word's been revealed to us, we are now called to pass it on. Jesus tells us to go and declare this word and make disciples of all peoples. And we can have confidence that when we do that, when we proclaim his word, it is effective. So Isaiah 55 says his word doesn't return to him void. It doesn't just go out into the distance and stay there. It comes back. It boomerangs. It accomplishes God's purpose And so we can have that great confidence and boldness to declare his word. I I want to tell you about my friend Maxine. At my former church, before we moved to Nashville, we also had a, a Sunday evening prayer service. And during that prayer service, just like at our prayer service here at Edgefield, we would pray for the regular ongoing preaching ministry of the church. And we often asked Maxine to pray. Maxine's in her 80s. She's been a member of that church for over 50 years. And she's seen so many people come to faith in Christ under the preaching of the word there. And in her prayer, she would often read, or not read, she would quote from memory, the verse, Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? It's so encouraging to hear her recite that verse all the time in her prayer. Why? Because she's seen that that's true. She has seen God's word powerfully work in people and it's transformed the way that she prays. Now she's praying for that word to keep doing that just as we pray for that same thing here at Edgefield every Sunday evening. And I praise God that Edgefield Church is a congregation that so evidently delights in the word of God. That's why, you know, our services each Sunday morning are so saturated with Scripture. We don't have anything else. That's why our songs and our prayers and the sermon are all either speaking the words of Scripture or reflecting on the words of Scripture or responding to the words of Scripture because we've tasted that Scripture is what transforms us. When God speaks, that's what changes us and fills us with hope and love and faith. And so I pray that that has been your story, that you've been transformed by God's word, and that as we come and sing his word together and pray it together, we get the delight of seeing his his word go to work in our brothers and sisters. If you're here this morning and you're not sure what you think about Jesus, if you have questions about what it means to follow him, My best advice to you about how to spend any free time you have this week or over the rest of the holiday season is expose yourself to God's Word. Read the Bible. There are dozens of people around who can testify that this Word has turned their lives upside down in the best way. And they would love to have coffee with you and and answer questions you might have about what you see in God's Word. Because we have seen God work in our lives so powerfully by his word, what do we do? We praise him. We praise him for his strong comfort, his sustaining care, and his sovereign command. So is anyone in charge of the universe? And does he care? Well, at age 13, Mes McConnell, the Scottish author, wasn't so sure. These questions continued to plague him. Life got worse for him. Drug addiction and crime led to prison. But even in the midst of the seeming chaos, there was a God sovereignly orchestrating everything. It just so happened that a bunch of Christians met Mez out on the streets and invited him to play soccer with them. They would call it football over there. And he did. And even though he was someone that the world seemed to have little use for, these these folks became genuine friends with him. And when he found himself back locked up in prison, they actually went far out of their way and took their time to just visit him and sit with him. And they gave him a Bible. And would you know it? Mez encountered God's effective word. It didn't make his life instantly easier. It didn't answer immediately all of his hard questions, but this is what he says. And his friends had shared with him the good news about Jesus and how that's the center of the Bible's story. And he writes, I just sat looking at a flower, a simple daisy it was. I suddenly realized that this flower didn't get here by accident. It was created. It was quite clearly designed and perfect in every way. God was a reality that I had To face. And that's the day that he repented of his sin and trusted in Christ. And today he pastors a church in Scotland and he leads a movement of church planters starting churches in the most deprived and poorest communities in that place. And so, do you see how God's sovereign command over all of creation, even that putting that daisy right there at that very moment, and how God's sustaining care for wounded people all came together? In Mez's life, in that one instant. To be sure, we can't answer every question that arises in this wounded world. On the final day, we will know in full, and now we only know in part. We see through a glass dimly, the Apostle Paul says. But Psalm 147 calls us to look nonetheless. Lift up your eyes and look at the proof that someone is in charge of the universe. See the stars and all their vast array. Look at the tender rains that water the earth. Look in awe at the snowstorm and the hail. But then don't just stop there. Look on to what he's done in history. Watch as God heals the brokenhearted and and marvel as he feeds the hungry and, and gaze on as he changes his people by his word. And even then, we can look further on still. We can look to the hill called Golgotha, where we see the one who was nailed to a cross that we might be rescued from our exile. Look to the Son of God who wore a crown of thorns and was pierced to heal your deepest wound. So look to Jesus And in his suffering, see God's care for you. And in his resurrection, see God's command over life and death and life eternal. And then, as we look on at the risen Christ, don't just look, but sing, make melody, give thanks, and praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do praise you for what you've done for us in Christ. Your grace and mercy to us is beyond what we can comprehend. Just as your power and strength is beyond measure and your wisdom is farther that we can ever articulate. Lord, we praise you for the ways that you have cared for us and comforted us through Christ Christ. We praise you that you are the God who is in command of everything, even when we can't understand it. Lord, we cannot claim to know everything, but you do. You know it all, and your ways are far beyond our ways. And that is why you are worthy of our praise and our songs and our thanksgiving. And so we pray that you would receive glory now as the good God who has cared for us in Christ who has offered us eternal life. Would you receive all the praise and honor and thanks? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.